Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. It's uh, great to have you here and it's great to have Darren Burgess. G'day, Burjo. G'day, Brookie. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, we've got a very special guest uh, today. Would you like to introduce her? Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to introduce Chelsea Randall to, to the audience. Um, Chelsea, I'll let you introduce yourself, uh, but uh, because she's quite humble. Uh, she's a premiership player multiple times at the Adelaide Crows and, uh, and in fact, premiership captain. And is now uh, about a month into a uh, full-time uh, player development coach uh, with, with the men's team as well. So uh, welcome, Chels. Thank you. Thanks, Burjo. Brookie, it's great to yeah, be on this. And um, yeah, I'm really excited. So thanks for having me on, guys. We should explain to our international audience that so we're talking about uh, AFL women's, so the Australian football women's version, which uh, has only started up as a professional league the last uh, five or six years, uh, which Chelsea has been very involved in. So, uh, yeah, just by way of a bit of background. Chelsea, tell us, tell us how you got started in, uh, in footy and t- take us on your journey. Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, Australian rules footy, it wasn't really a place for girls to be to be playing it was mainly a male dominated sport um so when I first started playing um my brother had always played he's a little bit older than me um I'm from Western Australia originally um, my dad was the boundary umpire the guy that runs around the outside and throws the ball back in and my mum was the manager and yeah I remember it was during a halftime game of my brothers and the under 11s coach um saw me kicking a ball around with my dad and he said, oh, do you want to fill in for the boys team tomorrow? And I thought, oh, can I? And um, I was a bit shocked because I'd never seen any other girls kind of playing the sport. Um, and dad said yes. Uh, but the one I had to try to convince was my mum because she said no straight away. <laughs> and uh, I think dad managed to convince her and said, oh, you know how Chelsea and Scott, my brother, we wrestle all the time like surely she'll be fine just give her a chance um and so mum ended up saying yes and um I went on to play my first ever game of footy um but it was really interesting um because I wasn't really welcomed um and it was an awkward stage for a young girl you know I'm I'm 11 years old I'm standing in front of the opposition before the game is about to begin and you you kind of face the opposition to get your nails and your boots checked before you start and all the boys in the other team had just recognised that there's this person in that team that's got a ponytail and, yep, sure enough, that's me, she's a girl. And they started laughing and pointing at me. Um, and, yeah, for me, that was probably a really challenging point because I, I realised I was different. Um, and instead of running off the field, I decided to just pick the one that was laughing the hardest and remembered his jumper number. And about 30 seconds into the game, he picked up the ball and I ran in and tackled him to the ground and got a, a free kick and because he held, held the ball. And I thought, yeah, I kind of like this game. This is fun. <laughs> um, and I guess that was the very beginning of my story. Um, yeah, and I guess that's where I subconsciously or indirectly found a my value for inclusivity and wanting no one ever to feel like left out. 
um, from that moment onwards. So through your junior footy, you, you played with boys, obviously, initially. Yeah, yeah, correct. So you get to an age in women's, oh, sorry, in boys' footy and junior football, you get to about 13 and you can no longer play in a boys' competition. Um, and so there was no youth girls. There was no, you know, teenage kind of uh, sport for me to play in or junior girls. So I had to join at the age of 14 a um, open women's competition. So I was playing with 30-year-olds and um, got invited down to the state um, training sessions as a 14-year-old. Um, by 15, I was, yeah, um, played in my first state carnival and 17, um, it, was, it happened every biannual year, um, the state nationals, and that was kind of the highest level that you could get to with women's footy. Um, and yeah, for me, that was, you know, it was, it was awesome. It was something that I loved doing, um, you know, but watching it on TV, I loved following the AFL um, on the TV and watching it. But, you know, I never saw any females on the TV playing the game. It was only ever males. Um, and so you, you start evolving these beliefs as a young teenager about where you sit in society um, and, and what that looks like. And so it could be, it was really challenging in that kind of space, realising that, yeah, I wouldn't have those opportunities um, to play for an AFL club um, during my teenage years. That was something that I'd aspire and would love to have done. But, um, and, you know, who, who knew the future was going to turn out that way and I'd get my opportunity. But at the time, um, you know, it was something that, that wasn't really spoken about. Um, I had, when I'd play games of football, you know, my parents would get... Um, they'd get questioned or even sworn at and saying, why are you allowing your girl to play a boy's sport? Um, you know, I was told to go back to the kitchen or go play a, a female sport like netball or something else. Um, and so that was really challenging, all those different kind of conversations, just navigating through all of that. Um, but I just loved the game so much and I wanted people to see how much I loved it. So joining women's footy was awesome because I saw that there was actually other girls that loved it like me and I wasn't alone. Um, it turns out there was quite a lot, which was really cool. Um, and yeah, I guess that's where it stemmed. At the age of 17, I was vice captain that state team. Age of 19, I was the captain. Um, and yeah, soon enough, um, I guess the next step we had were exhibition games, which was between two AFL clubs two brave AFL clubs, Melbourne Demons and Western Bulldogs said, yep, we'll run, um, we'll get the best top 50 girls in Australia and they can play against one another on the MCG um, once a year and we can showcase female football. And so I got drafted at draft pick number three across Australia um, and played for the Melbourne Demons. And that was, I guess, the highest level you could kind of get to. Um, and Gillan McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL in about 20 15, I believe, he, he turned around and said, we're going to have a national women's competition uh, by the year 2017. Um, and I got really excited. And that was obviously the launch of the AFL women's competition where we would be professional athletes, um, play for an AFL club and be paid to play as well. It was all very exciting. <laughs> In the meantime, though, you'd, uh, you'd made some, uh, you made some interesting decisions on uh, where you were going to live and where you were going to work. I did, yeah. I um, during that path, obviously, the playing footy. Um, it did get to a stage where, well, is this the only you know 
thing that I can strive strive for, which was the state footy. Um, and that was kind of it. And so I kind of went, well, I need to work and focus on my career and what am I actually going to do with my life? So when I left school, I had no idea. Maybe I was one of those kids. I don't know if you guys either can relate or not, but I was one of those kids that was quite stuck and lost and not really sure what to do. Um, so I actually was a labourer for my dad when I finished school. And I was on the shovel. I was driving the trucks and um, working on site with a group of 30 blokes. And um, I remember I had my state footy coach, Nicole Graves. She called me and she said, what are you doing with your life? And I just said, oh, currently I'm... I'm in a hole, literally I was digging a hole and, um, and she said, oh, why don't you um, apply for this traineeship at um, Swan Districts Football Club, which was like a waffle club, a state league kind of club and um, you could be a receptionist um, and get a traineeship there. So I did that uh, for two years and I, um, I remember watching a fellow walk past me in shorts and a polo and I thought, oh, what does he do? That sounds like a really cool job. And he told me he was a development um, officer. So he would go out to schools and he would use football as a tool to engage kids in either joining up to football or, um, or you know, running coaching clinics or uh, umpiring courses, everything to do with football, multicultural, Indigenous or female, everything. And I thought, yeah, I want to do that. And so um, he actually left and I applied and got the job and was a development officer for three years. And I loved that job. Um, because it was everything about footy. Um, and then, yeah, I, I unfortunately, uh, you know, it was a bit of a turning point in my, in my life. I'd, I'd lost my number one supporter, my grandma. My grand had passed away um, in 2014. So this is pre-AFLW. Um, and I decided I, I didn't want to do footy without her. She was at every single game. Uh, and then I decided, yeah, what do you do? You jump on seat.com, see what's out there. I became a, a motorbike postie um, about seven hours south of Perth um, in, in a place called Esperance. And so I needed some accommodation when I lived down in Esperance and I found a, went on to gumtree.com and I found a, a caravan in some bloke's backyard. Um, so I, I embraced the challenge, I took a risk and yeah, it, I was just, it really helped reset me. Um, it was, yeah, extraordinary. But you kept playing football, so you would drive from Esperance to uh, to Perth on a weekend to play football? Uh, during that time, it was about three or four months I was in Esperance um, and there was no footy on. But I then got a job as a regional manager working up in Newman, which was a 13-hour drive from Perth. And that was where there was no women's competition. That was literally in the in the desert, um, a small mining town, and I was a regional manager. My role was to use football and netball to engage students in positive behaviours and attendance at school. I went out to some remote Indigenous communities and spent some beautiful time and up there. But, yes, if I did want to play a game for Swan District's Football Club, I'd drive 13 hours, come on down, play a game, and drive all the way back for work. Um, so that was a time where, yeah, I obviously didn't play too many games because the drive was really big. But... Um, yeah, and then after that, I spent two years there and that's when AFLW got announced and um, changed my life. So it gets announced uh, that there's going to be AFLW and how do, you, how do you nominate for that? How do you let people know that you're around and, or, or did the exhibition game sort of uh, let everybody know that um, 
you know, you were going to be one of the one of the top draft picks. Yeah, it was an interesting journey because I wasn't playing a lot of footy um, at state lake level. Um, and yeah, those exhibition games probably allowed me to be um, on show in front of other coaches or for it to be live streamed. We've never had games live streamed before. So um, yeah, I remember, um, I think out of the eight AFLW clubs, there was about six that had contacted me and wanting me as their marquee player, which was like your top two players that they could um, have. So you don't actually go to draft, you're, um, you're picked. I think two or three months before the draft. Um, and so um, we had an exciting opportunity to make a decision. And I remember uh, David Noble, um, who was working um, for the Adelaide Football Club at the time, he actually uh, flew up and came to Newman, uh, came out to my desert town um, and he met the community and I guess, um, yeah, understood some of my values and um, in community and that inclusivity and, um, bringing a real sense of belonging um, to where I, wherever I am, whether that's in the classroom or as a team or at a club. Um, and he, he quite valued some of those things and um, felt that I could be that person and be the marquee for the Adelaide Footy Club. And, um, and I was really drawn to probably some of the similarity values as well or similar values um, at the club and decided to move there. Thought I was only going to be there for six months and uh, turns out I bought a house. I've been here for about six, seven years now. So, um, yeah, it's been a, an incredible journey um, from that moment onwards. And so in that, in that first year, you named uh, captain, uh, well, I think co-captain at the time, you named uh, in the All-Australian team, uh, most courageous player, um, and you win the flag um, with the Crows. That, that must have been... Uh, an incredible experience. I, I guess, um, from from my point of view, how have and and I should say that the Crows have gone on to win uh, premierships uh, 17, 19, 22. Am I right? There? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, out of the uh, six seasons, or is that five seasons? We had six seasons, but the COVID season oh, um, actually COVID, scratched that we had no premier. Yeah, so technically out of five grand finals. Um, out of five, uh, you've won three. What, uh, what can I say? Why? Why have you won three in five? <laughs> uh, what, what's is it? The talent? Is it the culture? Is it the resilience? You've been named uh, most courageous player in the AFLW a couple of times as well. Um, just to, to let the players know the type of player, that, the listeners know the type of player that you are. If you had to put it down to a few things on why the Crows have been so successful, uh, what would you what would you say, Charles? Uh, I think it, it is a, a few different things, but um, we really pride ourselves on our culture um, that we started back in 2017. And, you know, we recruited um, talent, but really good people. Um, and people that were willing to, you know, do everything that they possibly can to be the best version of themselves, whether that be staff, coaches, or players. Um, for me, looking back on it, trust and vulnerability builds connection. Um, and that is pivotal and part of our trademark. So I'm happy to share our trademark as players. Um, lots of teams obviously go through trademarks and values and and everything and we went through ours and we came up with true 
which stands for trust, relentless, united and elite. And this really shaped our behaviours, our actions and our attitudes towards everything that we did um, or everything that we expected of one another. Um, and it's been, you know, looked at every single season to go, do we need to tweak things? And we'll change, you know, little sentences underneath and bits and pieces. But for us, it's been really a part of our language. It's been a part of our culture. And it's enabled us to really have conversations or hard conversations when play, players either go below standard in some of those areas um, when we expect, you know, a, a higher standard, I guess. Um, for me personally, like I, my kind of values um, are around that, but also around courage, um, courage to be yourself, courage to show up even on the days that you don't want to, courage to, to just support others, courage to be vulnerable with others um, and courage to be the fierce competitor on the football field. Um, you know, that's a really big one for me. Um, but the biggest part of that is the courage to be myself. Uh, my or true authentic self and I've had to work through that over the last few years as well um, and probably the last one there is is clarity I don't think I really understood um, the importance of clarity and really the meaning behind it but um, I now see the value so much value in just making sure that all my teammates that our you know as, as players we have clarity from our physios from our coaches you know, from our support staff, everyone understands what their role is, um, how to play it. Um, and if we don't have clarity, there's a system breakdown and we need to help educate one another so that we can get back on track and, and have clear understanding and clarity about that to be the best that we can. Um, so I guess for me, it's those kind of things. It's a great point, Chelsea, you make about that clarity. Um, and we'll get back to that from a support staff point of view, because I guess that's where a lot of our listeners uh, are. In terms of the courage to be yourself um, and for, for everybody within the organisation to be yourself, how um, can you give me a, a sort of a practical example of not necessarily, um, it might not have happened or a personal example, but how that might um, play out with regard to the support staff. If you see um, uh, one of the physios or fitness coaches not um, coming in line with the club culture, how might those difficult conversations happen? Yeah, it's, it is an interesting one. And I guess, you know, as players, we're probably fortunate enough um, we deal with just playing and bits and pieces but there are occasions where um, we might need to tweak things in the program or with support staff to to help um, educate them about our culture as well and um, and help make our program slightly better and so I think in the very first year um, we we only had a physio from four, we start training at like 5 30 but we we had a physio coming in at about 4 45 and you've got 30 players on the track um, and you'd probably only get to maybe two players. And so we we're having a lot of players with carrying injuries. We we're still learning how to be athletes um, and not really understanding our bodies. So it was really important that we had a little bit more time. The players were getting there at like 334 um, and we just, we needed to tweak something in our program, make sure that we had, you know, the resources 
surrounding us to be better athletes or to help us. And so we had to have those kind of conversations um, about what was expected. And that's challenging because our support staff and our players are all part-time. So they all had worked other jobs. Um, but, you know, in particular, when we talk about just courage in general, I think it's um, just showing the kindness and respect for one another and, and gaining an understanding of what that person's role is and, um, and asking the questions. That's what courage to me is. And, um, you know, we only know what we know and we're only as good as all the information that we have at that point in time. So um, we're all just trying our best. And the way we can get better is by supporting one another and, um, and giving that clear, uh, I guess, communication and, and clarity on, on those roles and, and what we can do better um you know consistently reviewing it yeah i think it's a it's a great point as well the consistently reviewing it um i think we've all been part of clubs where there's um writing on the wall and slogans around the dressing room and um but it's more the behaviors um that represent um those slogans which which are the, are the real things you know every club would have their own version of true i would imagine um, but yeah. it's the actual implementation of that by the club leaders and, and everybody else around the club that, that separate the really good clubs to the ones that adhere to that, to the ones that just, just put it on the wall. Um, yeah. There was a really good example the... as well, Burjo. The, um, sorry, our, um, Jordan Sellers, our, our amazing S&C, our strength and conditioning guy. I just, you know, we had a lot of girls on phones during the gym and they'd be snapchatting or bits and pieces and went to him just to say I need your help I need your help in driving a standard here um like no phones we've got iPads to use um or you know if you catch someone it's there's a consequence and stuff or he or he's able to call people out and stuff and so we went to him and the the courage for them him to stand in front of everyone as well and say girls this is you know our gym this is what's expected um, for him to be on the same page was was awesome. That was another example, I guess. Yeah, it really is those those standards, I reckon, which are especially in today's uh, uh, society with with uh, social media and everything like that. Um, if I can take you back to last season where you had a few uh, ongoing issues and um, with with some hamstring and lower backs stuff, I guess, from our point of view, how did the did the staff involved? And you mentioned Jordan, who's who's outstanding. Um, how did the staff? How can support staff help um, athletes when they're going through that? And you might want to give a little bit of context around it, um, and and what you as an elite athlete would expect um, uh, from from the support staff in terms of trying to help you solve solve the problem. Yeah. I, again, for me, so I did my ACL. Um, in 2020, the season 2020. And, you know, I had some amazing support through that. Um, and recently this year, um, and Berjo, you probably might know the more um, scientific kind of way of, of saying these, of what it was, but from my understanding, what my injury was, um, I was kind of told it was a hammy tendon, um, although I didn't have a semitendinosis because that was used as my ACL, um, my new ACL. So I believe it was the scar tissue that was kind of reforming and I, I strained that and that was causing me a lot of pain. Um, but I didn't necessarily fully understand the injury. 
So that was where maybe my frustration was coming from um, this season because I wasn't understanding what was going on with my body. Um, and because it was such a unique injury, um, not a lot of people could, could help me kind of understand it either. Um, and we kind of just kept pushing through and we'd, we'd start, you know, my road to kind of re rehab and recovering. We'd, we'd put me back at 70% running and, and ease my way back into it. And then I'm feeling really good and I'm back at hundred percent after two weeks. And then all of a sudden a, a slight extension of my leg um, and I'd be back to square one again. Um, so I couldn't quite understand it, but um, luckily enough for me, it was, um, I think, a week before our prelim final. So I only played about four games this season out of um, out of probably 12 or 13 that we had for our season. Um, and, yeah, and I went up for a, a marking contest in at training and put a lot of, uh, I guess, power behind um, behind myself and and it actually um, snapped this scar tissue or um, whatever it kind of was at the it, it was scar tissue wasn't it Virgil I believe it was in the end um, but yeah so yeah that's, that's certainly that, yeah that's certainly my understanding sorry Chelsea that's certainly my yeah. understanding that's exactly what it was yeah so it was like it was trying to reform um it, because I didn't have that semi-tendinosis there so the scar tissue it basically snapped it retracted sounds horrible but it was the best thing for me um and I went into finals without any injury um and during that time yeah it was it was probably like I said throughout the season was just more frustration because I didn't have clarity again that word or an understanding of what was really kind of happening um and yeah, and I believe it's probably similar to that injury and maybe I'm incorrect, Berger, maybe you can correct me, but the plantar fasciata where there's an old tail where they got someone to jump off the <laughs> table to, to snap it so that it, they could play free of pain. But um, yeah, was that right? used to prescribe that actually, Chel, so he's probably a Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, it's a famous Robert Harvey story, I think, that uh, you had a partial tear and he... Uh, Converted it to a complete chair by jumping up and down off a uh, off a chair until it snapped. So um, yeah, that uh, no, that's certainly true. Sometimes it's it's actually better to have a complete tear of something than uh, than to have a a partial tear that keeps trying to sort of reform and and so on. So uh, so you're right there. Not that I'd really recommend uh, doing that all the time. No, but, um, yeah. and that was a unique injury with scar tissue for me. Not we're not talking muscles or anything yeah. like that whatsoever. Yeah. Avoid yeah. that. But um, yeah, it was a unique injury. Um, yeah, but I'm just grateful that um, it happened and I was able to play pain-free. But, um, yeah, it was definitely just a unique time. But that, the way they, the support staff supported me was just trying to work through all the, all the different things with me and try and get an understanding. So we were on the journey together, even though it was frustrating for, for me and for probably everyone. What about the the mental side of, of you know rehab and, and recovery? Obviously, you know there's the the physios are doing the uh, in, you know doing the work and and, and prescribing the uh, the program and so on. But but what about the you know the, the mental side? Obviously, you had you know, twelve months of it with your with your ACL and, and then you had your ups and downs last year. I mean, what did you do? You know, did you do anything specific? Um, did you work with uh, psychologists or? Uh, or you know the, the physios themselves and the fitness staff are, are you know psychologists uh, really them, themselves. So what what sort of what helped you in that to get you through that that period? Uh, 
Yeah, really good question. I think going through that ACL journey, as you know, and as you've stated, it's, it is a 12-month rehabilitation um, or rehab process. Um, for me, the first couple of weeks or first month was quite challenging, again, because I didn't have clarity on, on what the goals that I was trying to achieve, what my next steps were. Um, I was going in blindly um, and I guess felt like I was a bit in limbo and what am I trying to achieve? I, I love having um, goals set and I love having a, a purpose or an understanding of the why am I doing a certain thing. Um, and so I went to a physio that really, yeah, he really helped me out and he became our um, AFLW physio in 2020. And he was outstanding. He gave a lot of time um, with me, mainly just to help me understand the why, um, you know, and, and the next steps and that we had to build our muscle mass on, on this and this exercise was going to help me do that. Um, and that was really helpful um, because every time, you know, it's, it's hard rocking up to training. Sometimes you're doing three hours on your own and you're isolated and you're, even though your teammates try their best to uh, make sure that you're still connected, um, there's an element and a, I guess a, there's moments where you definitely feel that you're, you're on your own um, and you're having to do it on your own. So, yeah, for them to just be at training with you and alongside you and supporting you and um, is, you know, is so, so valued. So that was, that was probably the biggest thing is my understanding and giving me clarity, um, but also that support. I mean, I was seeing a um, psychologist as well at the time just to mentally going through um, all the things that I was able to do before I'm starting, you know, right at the, right at the bottom, I'm relearning how to walk, um, learning how to um, jump on the spot, all these little things that you take for granted. Um, and you've just got to retrain your brain and your mindset as well around all of it. Um, but it was an incredible journey uh, for me to learn more about myself. Um, and it was, yeah, I'm, to be honest, I'm actually forever grateful that I that, that happened to me so that I was able to have those learnings. I'm able to have empathy and um, for others and an understanding of what others might be going through with long-term injuries, which, you know, in turn can, can help me in my leadership um, with my teammates as well. And uh, you guys won the league last year. And since then, there's been a bunch of new teams that have come in and, and have, and some of uh, the Crows uh, players have been picked off by other teams. And there's now the, the Crosstown, Crosstown rivalry with, with Port Adelaide, who they've just come into the league. What would be the biggest challenge before we get onto your sort of coaching journey? What's the biggest challenge that the Crows face this year and, and how are you, uh, are you overcoming it? Yeah, the biggest challenge I think will be to keep each individual um, on track, focused and uh, motivated because it's a really unique for the AFLW competition. Um, we've actually had a season. We normally play our season through, from uh, February through to April. Um, we played that this year uh, and we've actually moved our entire start dates uh, to August to November. Um, so we're actually getting two seasons in the one year, um, which means we've only really had a month off um, and normally we'd have quite a few. So 
for part-time workers um, who sacrifice a lot during the season with their families, with their work, with their uni. Um, you know, they've, they've now having to sacrifice another season um, and another couple of months. Uh, again, we've got police officers, we've got school teachers. Um, you know, every, every player has a unique story um, on what they're doing as well. Uh, but, yeah, we did get a pay rise this year, which makes things slightly easier for players as well to juggle those things. But, um, yeah, it's probably just keeping everyone focused and, and on track and um, it comes down to making sure that we, we trust one another and continue to keep building on our connections, bring our new draftees on board and make sure they're up to standard and, and you know, well supported and cared for um, so that we can just go out there and um, be the best we can. Um, but I think the biggest thing for us is what we're really good at is is filling each other's bucket. And what we mean by that is, you know, is giving positive reinforcement. We know how powerful that can be. Um, and the old school way of, um, you know, yelling and shouting at someone, you know, is well and truly, in my eyes, um, yeah, it is kind of gone. I believe there's there's maybe a place and a time for it, but um, mostly we just do a really good job of building each other up, making them feel like it's a really supportive environment to be themselves so that they can play the best footy. And you're now, uh, I think, a month and three days into your um, coaching journey with the Crows. Yeah. Um, how, have you, uh, how have you found that? How have you enjoyed it? And, and what do you think with, with your best um, humility hat on, what do you think you can add to the to the mix that that um, that might be a bit might be a bit unique that we that we didn't actually have? Yeah, it's um I've been first of all I've absolutely loved it. Um, I'm smiling as I'm even just saying these words right now. It's it's been incredible, um, and I feel very lucky um, that you know I've uh, yeah got this opportunity to to work and learn from, you know, some of the, the industry's best. And yeah, it's just an incredible learning journey for me, but I really hope as well that, um, you know, I can continue to keep adding value um, in the men's either leadership group, um, you know, to players as individuals, the development boys coming through, um, but also like with my teaching degree um, with coaches as well. And, and just learning off them, but adding value as well, where how we can continue to make, um, you know, conversations and meetings engaging, um, which they do a tremendous job of already. Uh, so it's, yeah, there's lots of little things that I'm learning along the way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also just magnificent to see um, the resources and the, uh, within the program and some things that I can take back to the AFLW team as well and, and keep doing. Um, but I think, yeah, just adding value with my teaching degree hat on um, with that engagement. Um, but, yeah, I, I used to think there was a big difference um, with coaching men and women um, from my previous experiences in coaching um, where women, we, we generally ask the why a lot more. <laughs> why are we doing this or what's the purpose? And we wanted to know the why. Um, you know, however, I've been challenging that own thought um, just because someone, a, a, a male, may not be asking the question why doesn't mean that they want to hear it. Like, I mean, as in they, they want to still know what the purpose might be behind it rather than just setting up a drill 
Um, and we're kind of like, why are we doing this drill? Um, you know, with the boys, they generally just go out and just do it. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's players in there going, what, what, what's this benefiting? Like, why, why should I be doing this? And how is it making us better? So I've been challenging that thought. And at the end of the day, I believe it's very much the same. We're, we're treating individuals and athletes um, as athletes. And doesn't matter what gender they are. Um, they all just want to be the best version of themselves for their teammates and for their sport. Um, and, you know, that's what I intend to keep learning and, and keep doing to, to help others. Chelsea, the, the AFLW program's been, been, been a fantastic success. I think, you know, I think many of us would believe it's the best thing that's happened to the AFL for a long time. I guess the, the one disappointing part of it so far has been the, uh, the scarcity of, of female coaches. Um, the vast majority of coaches have been, uh, have been male. Um, there's been a couple of uh, exceptions and there are now a couple more this, uh, this coming season. What, why do you think that is and, 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 and where, where do you see the future? I mean, how, how do people like yourself and, and others um, you know, grow into that, uh, that role as, a, as an AFLW coach? Yeah, there's, um, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I, it's something that I kind of probably ponder over as well. And my, my initial um, answer to that is, well, a lot of coaches are, are just playing at the moment. Um, they're playing in AFLW and, and eventually we'll, I think we'll see more and more female coaches coming through after they retire and in coaching roles. Um, you know, and, and then I guess that's what I'd start with. But the, the baseline is we haven't had the same opportunities in the past as what um, our male counterparts um, were, I guess, privy to. And in terms of, you know, female footy pathways and, um, you know, our first year of playing in the AFLW competition, there were girls in our AFL um, list that had only picked up the ball two or three years beforehand rather than majority of the time you speak to any AFL um, male player and, and majority of them have, have played since the age of five through Auskick, junior boys, um, their teenage years and, and then got drafted. Um, so for a lot of us, you know, which is an exciting thing, we're seeing it's the fastest growing a sport in Australia, female footy. We've now seen over about 600,000 girls um, you know, when it was only 17,000 girls playing the game. We've now seen that many girls now picking up the footy and choosing to play, um, you know, and, and now we're, we're helping those people just learn more about the game. They're more educated in that space. And, and our male counterparts, they, they play such a significant role in helping us, um, you know, get there. You know, it's, it's, it's males and females coming together and supporting one another for those opportunities, learning from one another so that we can just build a community that is, you know, inclusive of everyone and whoever might be best for the job is, you know, whatever it might be, where it doesn't matter what gender. Um, so I think it's great that we're starting to create opportunities like this acceleration program we've, that I'm a part of. We've got myself and eight other females across the country that are um, working in the AFL um, men's programs, which is awesome. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess my challenge is that, um, can you create, yeah, just more than one seat at the table? Because um, when, it, when it first happened, I was very excited 
Um, but then I think about some of my other teammates who would also, you know, love this journey. And, and I was like, oh, why can't there be two of us? Um, why is there only the one? Um, so and I think it's just thinking about those ways of how we can continue to keep mentoring and keep supporting one another to create more opportunities for, for all genders, for all people to keep learning and educate so that we have the best people in the roles. Um, because I think diversity is key uh, to any organisation. Bringing different perspectives um, is pure gold for, for gratitude and, and learning. Now, I'm assuming that you eventually want to coach an AFLW team. Um, you don't have to answer that, but uh, let, let's assume that. Um, what what do you need to do? You know, so someone you know, towards the end of your playing career, if you don't mind me saying. I mean, you know, you hope you keep going a little bit longer, but uh, you know, getting towards the end of your playing career, looking towards coaching, what do you feel you need? You know, to to uh, to arm yourself to be a you know a senior coach. Um, first of all, I need to work out how to use this sports code um, <laughs> vision stuff. <laughs> there is so many ways to use this and it's, it's remarkable learning from all the different coaches. Everyone's got a different um, way of using it. So I'm just kind of working out what's best and what works for me at the moment. Um, so the technology piece, uh, definitely. Um, but yeah, look, I, I feel like every day I'm learning, um, whether that be in coaching or as a leader or as a school teacher that I'm studying my degree. Um, and I love that. Like I'm a student of life and I think that's probably the first attribute that any leader or, or coach, you know, we never know it all. Um, we're forever learning. Um, and I think that that's always exciting because society is always evolving. Technology is always evolving. Um, you know, and the only way for us to keep up with that is supporting, like getting people around us that, you know, have strengths in other areas as well. Um, and leaning on one another to to build something you know remarkable. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots of little things for me to to continue to get better at. Um, you know, I feel just even just the programming of of setting up a um, a whole program. Um, but you know, I've, I'm really lucky. I've got uh, Matthew Nix from the men's head coach, and I've got Matthew Clark, my own AFLW uh, head coach, and remarkable people and role models for me to look up to um you know in that space and we'll see what the journey unfolds but for now I'm just enjoying the ride and enjoying playing still because yeah that athlete window can be really short we just want to make the most of it as well and what are you learning about working with support staff because obviously as you mentioned before the support staff of the AFLW is pretty limited um, they do a fantastic job, but uh, all of a sudden you've been exposed to a, an AFL club where there's a much bigger support uh, staff. I mean, do you feel that uh, you know support staff they, they make the best use of it, and how you can make better use of it, or what? Are, what have you sort of what are your observations at this early stage? Uh, support staff make footy clubs. Like there is no denying that the the roles um, that we have on people that volunteer and. And that I still remember, I'll share a story back in 2017. Um, we had a, um, someone who, our support staff volunteer, who was in charge of all the drinks um, and water and our Powerades and everything. And I'd never had anything like that before. Oh, my God. Someone that would, like, you know, wheel out the water bottles to us and 
we wouldn't have to run an extra 200 meters to go grab your own or if you'd forgotten yours bad luck um you know it was incredible and his name was Craig and I said thanks so much Craig every time we finish a drill we go up to him and he's like Chelsea you're gonna stop thanking me I was like nah mate like this is this like you're incredible he's our hydration specialist you know is um it was just remarkable but it's people like that at your footy club that add so much value um so first of all to any support staff listening never underestimate how valuable you are to football clubs um and to the players um but I think as a player we need to make sure or even as coaches that we continue to support those members as well because you know it is a bit intimidating and scary when you turn up um to an elite program and if you don't really know anyone it's we have to go outside our comfort zones and get to know every single individual, whether that's players, support staff, whoever gives time to our program, you know, we need to give time to them. Um, yeah. And that's how we grow as a, as a collective. Chelsea, we really, really, really appreciate your time. Um, we know in between at the moment, for the listeners out there, Chelsea's in the towards the end of pre-season training, which everybody knows can be pretty intense, as well as full-time coaching uh, as part of the men's program. So uh, she's incredibly busy. So we appreciate your time. That's my dog in the background there. Sorry about that. Um, uh, we really appreciate your time this morning and, and it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. And we look forward to having another conversation when you're coaching, senior coach of a... AFL men's or women's team. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. It's been great. Uh, thanks a lot, Chelsea. Get your relief. Yeah.